Good evening. Thank you all for being here. We are finishing up this leg of our On Again, Off Again series in the book of Acts. So I invite you to turn there to Acts chapter 20 in the second half of your Bible called the New Testament. Acts, as you'll remember, is the story of how the good news of Jesus is on the move to who? Everyone, everywhere. As you've heard me say some 40 other times, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, really does mean everyone. And as we've seen in this last little stint, he really does mean everywhere. Because if nothing else, Acts is also the story of movement. Paul and Peter and Stephen and other characters throughout the story have racked up a lot of frequent flyer miles. And so Acts is the story of movement. But that's okay, because your life is itself a story of movement. Show of hands if you're the same just now as you were 20 years ago. And if you haven't even lived 20 years, Owen, raise your hand if you think, feel, act differently now than you did even just a few years ago. We're in process. We're growing. We're progressing. We're developing. And the church is too. And so we're going to see even more miles make their way across the page as in a few moments we're going to look through Acts chapter 20. But before we get there, I want to tell you a story. This is a story from our college years. And Amy and I were dating from my freshman to senior year in college. So you want to talk about movement and change? Try staying with the same person as you're burgeoning into a young adult through all that movement through college. So let's just say Adam, college Adam, was a man in process. Adam watched a documentary about a Christian haunted house. And you say, what? And I say, you must not have been living in Texas in the 1990s. Because there is a kind of haunted house that was even very famous, and even people in this room were a part of, right up the road at the Rock, where our clothes closet is, where our dinner was last night. But there's a kind of Christian haunted house that sets up these dramatic everyday life to the extreme scenes, where you see some inevitable kind of bad choices being made, violence ensuing, and then it follows a group of teenagers performing and acting as they make their way through the fires of hell and as they make their way through the bliss of heaven. These were called houses of judgment or these were called a hell house. Hell house is the name of the documentary of this kind of haunted house that I watched. And it is finding its subject at a large church in Cedar Hill. And so as soon as I realized in the midst of this documentary that this hell house is like 40 minutes down the road, I'm there. And then not only were Amy and I dating in college or just after college, we were friends with Jaron and Kristen Payne. And because they're not here tonight, I'm going to continue telling this story. <laughs> Jaron had never been to a haunted house. And I said, I love haunted houses, but I'll do you one better. How about a Jesus haunted house? And he said, I'm in. 
So we pile into my 2003 Saturn Ion, and we start making our way down 67 or 35, whatever it is. And we arrive in that October evening, and then we hear groaning from the back seat because we brought along Amy and Kristen. And it's suddenly dawning on them that this is a horrible idea. They are not fans of haunted houses. And so we roll up and we go up to the ticket booth after some cajoling to get there. It's a Jesus haunted house. It's okay. Come on. You're going to heaven. It's all right. And then they tell us the dreaded news. There's a three and a half hour wait. Am I right? Three and a half hours to which Amy and Kristen probably high fived and said, well, let's head to Chipotle. And so we pile back into the Saturn Ion, and Jaron and I are in the front seat pouting. Because I promised my friend a haunted house, and now we're headed back up north, and as much as I love Chipotle, I want a haunted house. So he and I kind of exchange a knowing nod while Kristen and Amy carry on in the back seat, completely unaware that I pull off on 35 North, and I head just up the way, and then I exit Oaklawn. And it's around this time that Amy starts to look around and realize we're not supposed to go this direction. And that's when she asks, wait, where are we going? And I said, I don't know, as I turn on my blinker. And Jaron's like, Kristen, I I honestly don't know what he's doing, as he winks at me. And we pull up to the parking lot of Dallas Scaregrounds, which is not, shall we say, a Jesus haunted house. Even more cajoling because Amy realizes that in process, not yet fully moved, Adam has given her an option of you come with me or you wait in the car. And she decides, okay, fine, but I'm going to kill you as she follows me into the haunted house. Now, it was a disaster for her. And I promised I would never take her to a haunted house again, which is why now I go to haunted houses with Toby and Jaron and some others. But I will never forget this moment of dawning where she's like, wait a minute, where are we going? Because Amy's question also carried with it this intuitive sense of where we're going, I don't want to go. And then later, the sickening feeling that not only am I going, not only do I not want to go, but I'm right. It's tough, it's going to be nasty and dark, and people are going to be screaming and hollering at me. But she understood then that she just had to go through it. She didn't, but Paul did. And so when we come to Acts chapter 20, we're having the same sinking feeling. And tonight's big question is, where are we going Because we may not like it. It will probably be tough, but we will make it through. So it's not just, oh, we're going to this dot on the map. It's where I'm going will be rough. And it's going to be through tears. But there's something to be learned from pressing on anyway. So tonight's big question is, where are we going? And I'm going to give you three answers from the three different chunks of Acts chapter 20. Some of you might be wondering, wait a minute, are we about to read the whole chapter? Is Adam about to preach through the whole chapter? And the answer is yes. 
We may not like it. It will probably be tough, but we will make it. I'm just kidding. I am going to go through all of Acts chapter 20, but I promise you it will be a shorter sermon than the one we read about here in a few moments. So I'm going to give you three answers from three different sections to the question, where are we going? So let's dive into Acts chapter 20. Let's look at the first section, and in a moment I'll give you our first answer to the question. Watch the movement. Now, when the uproar had ended, that would be the riot in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them or strengthening them, you're going to make it, he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Now, here's where we start to have the Indiana Jones red line that crisscrosses the globe. If you're a visual person, you can hold out your fist like this and imagine that this is the Aegean Sea. And then you can take your Indiana Jones red dot and you can start to curl all the way up to the side of your wrist and then head all the way across your wrist as you travel the coast north and east. And then you head all the way back down south. And then, as we continue reading even more, you take that same finger and you go back up and back over and back nearly to where you started. When I tell you that Acts is the story of movement, I mean it. And so now we begin to move in chapter 2, excuse me, verse 2. So we traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where we stayed three months. But because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Phyrus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, Antichicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. That's a lot of names. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread and five days later joined the others at Troas where we stayed for seven days. Where are we going? The first answer is we're going somewhere together. Did you see all the names? You see, we have another blink and you miss it, we passage. Do you know what I mean there? Look back at your Bible. We see that Paul was staying somewhere three months and doing this or that. And Paul did this and Paul did that. But then you get to verse 6. And you see that we sailed. Once in a while, Luke dips back into the story of good news to everyone to everywhere as a participant and a co-laborer. And it reminds us, not just because of the we, but because of all the names, that sometimes we think that Paul is some lone ranger, rock star, trailblazing, starting things, tweeting, building a platform, getting a book deal, and just making things happen in the church world. And we think that Paul's just out there wrecking it and doing awesome. But you miss the reality that Paul is supported and connected within the broader community, watch, that's on the move with him. 
The thing is that Paul is usually the one that's up here with the microphone blathering on. But what you miss is that he's never, ever doing it alone. Even when Paul's in jail, people are coming to bring him food and clothes because the prison guards weren't going to give it for him. We had people delivering the letters that we now have hardbound in our leather books and on our phones. We had people that were funding the mission. We had people that were coordinating the mission. And the thing is, we haven't learned a thing in 2023 because we would rather just hear from a guy with a mic instead of having people to walk with together. I think we assume that Paul was out there blazing trails on his own because we have a model of ministry that is the people that get paid to do it and the people with the most followers to do it are the ones that should do it. But we miss the reality that this is something and somewhere we're doing and going together. He's supported and connected within a broader community that is right there alongside them. So a big idea for us this evening is this. To follow Jesus is to never walk alone. I heard Aaron and Azaria talking about the Premier League. I think I like Liverpool because they sing an excellent song before every match. And you'll never walk alone. That's a great song. And it's true. To follow Jesus is to never walk alone. And you say, yes, because my good shepherd is with me. And I say, yes. But as you walk with Jesus, you look up and realize that you walk with him and others through the highs and lows of life. Because that song is awesome when Brittany Howard, who's the singer of Alabama Shake, sings it. That's the greatest version of it. But it's even more magical when 50,000 Liverpudlians are singing it in the soccer stadium because there's something about doing this thing together. And will you say, it's just me and Jesus and that's all I need. And I say to you, not even Jesus did it alone. When Jesus began this movement, he went and found companions for the journey. And he found some fishermen who were everyday people like us. They didn't have master's degrees. They didn't have celebrity Twitter platforms or X or whatever it is. They don't have book deals. They don't have clout or charisma. But he says, we're going to go fish for people. And this is where we in Texas imagine some old timer with a Lowe's bucket next to him on the dock at Tyler State Park with a lone fishing pole because he's so tired of his wife just going on and on that I need some time alone. When Jesus asked them to fish for people, he didn't say, now go over there by yourself. He was talking to fishermen who were all together, sweaty, coming off the boat, and had been working an enormous net together. The fishing for people looked more like this image behind us. A group of people where you go take your corner and I'll take mine. And then you go make sure that it's That corner is covered over there, and then you make sure that that one's covered over there too. And then you stay here and make sure the boat is balanced so that we have a place to come back to. 
You see, whatever the metaphorical jobs you want to fill in, understand that we have different jobs, but we're all working to get fish back into the boat. We are all pulling in the same direction. Where are we going? We're going somewhere together. And Paul might have a microphone, but he is nothing without Timothy and Secundus and Gaius. He's nothing without those that are pulling their corners in Ephesus and Thessalonica and Derby. The movement to everyone everywhere, look, needs everyone. This is why later in Corinth, he'll say, we're all members of the same body, moving and walking together. But we all need each other, even though we all have different jobs. So the second answer to the question, where are we going? Well, we're going to do the work of new life that each of us is called and empowered to do. And this is the part where you say, I don't ever want to hold a microphone and preach. And God says, great, because I called and empowered you to go love those people that the guy with the microphone will never, ever speak to. I called you to go and ready the boat and to be hospitable and merciful and cultivate a community of welcome and space. But all of us are doing the same work, and that is the work of new life, resurrection, breaking in on earth as it is in heaven. The movement is always from heaven to earth that we might see more life in the midst of death, more healing in the midst of sickness, more plenty in the spaces and places of want, more forgiveness where there is hatred and sin. In the next section that I'm going to read for you, it's a comic section, it's an interesting section, but don't miss, real quick, the glimpse of how the community gathered. Sure, we're going to see Paul preaching a long sermon. So long. Well, you'll see. But what you're going to miss is that people invited others into that space. That a couple people cleaned the house all day and readied the table to host the gathering. What you didn't see was elders praying that the movement would move hearts. What you didn't see is the widows preparing once they were on the street and now they're in the kitchen with a purpose and a place. You don't see the women singing songs of worship. You don't see the old ones hugging and encouraging those who are young, telling them it may be tough, it will be hard, but we'll make it. You don't see the hugging, talking, and laughing. You don't see people working at community and working in community. You just see a guy preaching a long sermon. And I'm telling you, then you're not seeing the whole church. You're seeing a sermon. So don't miss that it takes each person holding their corner, not just as we go out there to fish for people, but as we gather in to use our gifts to make much of Jesus and to share his meal of life and death. So here's the scene. If they've come from a Jewish tradition, they're still going to the synagogue, which means on Saturdays. Remember, we're not just keeping it OG 
meeting Saturdays. We're meeting Saturdays because Sunday mornings tend to be taken where we can afford to rent. But in the earliest Jewish movement, they met on Saturdays, which is Sabbath. Don't let the Chick-fil-A employee tell you it's Sabbath that they're closed on Sunday. The Sabbath is Saturday. But sorry, that's another thing. When the Jewish movement started to get kicked out of the synagogue because they turned to Jesus, they started meeting on the first day of the week, which is what? Sunday. Which day of the week was Jesus raised on? Sunday. The first day of the week, the Lord's Day. But the problem is in the Jewish culture and the culture in which this church is being formed, the Sunday was the first work day of the week. So when do you do church? You do it super early or you do it like we do on Wednesdays. You do it at night. And so what you see here is that they've come from work and now they're going to sit down and they're going to have a meal. And it's a meal that celebrates the life and death of Jesus, communion. And then somebody's going to get up and preach. And that person tonight is Paul giving his final sermon to these people. The next section, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together. That's a we. To what? Break bread. Paul spoke to the people and said, because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. You think Luke is throwing any shade on that sermon? Did he have to say, kept on talking? There's something about on. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting, which means... It's mood lighting, and it's soft light, and it's 11.58. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Okay, Luke, man. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. He keeps going. Paul went down threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And why should a death ruin a good sermon? (laughs) After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Two quick things. Don't you ever say that I preach too long. Second... Y'all know what the name Eutychus means? Lucky. Or fortunate. Paul pulls in Elijah. Youth, look up 1 Kings 17. Adults, make note of 1 Kings 17. Paul's pulling in Elijah. When a young man dies, Paul goes to the Old Testament prophet's handbook and he lays on top of him Because he's seen in super rare instances, life reversing death. We're not sure that Eutychus or Lucky died or not. It's really even less clear than our English translation makes it. But what we do see is that before they celebrated the meal of life and death, they were reminded on Paul's farewell sermon that they are still the people of new life and new creation and resurrection. I love what Will Williman says, a former bishop 
in the Methodist church. He says this, Jesus did not come preaching a new philosophy. He came preaching a new way of living and dying. Our meal is a meal that remembers that we have eternal life because one died to defeat death. We raise the cup and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes because we're confident that he's still alive and he will come so that we may eat this meal with him again face to face. It's been said, and I heard most recently Pastor Rich Viotas in New York say it, that Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. And so as crazy as this scene is, and as near miss of a scene that it is, it's emblematic and in the story, just so you're not missing the point that within this community, dead people are made alive. And so last night, as we're sharing and breaking bread with as many neighbors as there are neighborhood church folk, we're laughing and we're eating and we're sharing a meal together. And before we gathered, we paused and said, remember why we're doing it. Not just because we all love Stouffer's lasagna, but because we believe that we can set a table and invite the Lord of life to come and wake dead people up so that they might find hope and forgiveness and to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be formed into the image of Christ so that they might go out and live a transformed life that bears witness to the world that sin, death, and evil are not the last word. This is the good news. And so as much as we say, as grandpa, may he rest in peace, we're just a little old church. I say we are a community of new creation, new life people. And there's a lot of dead people walking around out there that need to know that life is found in Jesus. And they can walk with us together. Because there's a version of the faith out there. That is a watered-down, cheap diet substitute. That would you just pray this magic prayer and go on and live the rest of your life unchanged, you're good. But understand that our faith is not just meant to be believed or said under duress at a hell house or otherwise. It's not just to assent that maybe, just probably, Jesus might be God. Our faith is meant to be received, rooted, and then lived out. That is the evidence of someone that prayed a prayer and meant it. Our faith is not just meant to be believed. Our faith is meant to be lived. There are too many Christians like me out there that too often say one thing and knows the right answers, but denies loving God and loving neighbor with my life. And if we can't point to a Paul or a Martin Luther King or a Desmond Tutu or a Mother Teresa or a Dorothy Day or a fill-in-the-blank, then who should ever listen to our words? Because they don't need another philosophy. They don't need another answer. 
They need to be made alive by hearing the good news that Jesus is Lord and we might follow him in this life together. So where are we going? We're going somewhere together. It takes all of us. Where are we going? To do the work that God has called us and empowered us to do as new life, new creation people. But the reason why this live it out means and matters so much is because Paul's going to send the last lengthy chunk in his farewell address telling the Ephesian elders, where are we going? Somewhere scary. You're not going to like it. It's going to be tough. But you'll make it as long as you keep watch, stand strong, and shepherd the flock that God has given you. And he's going to reflect back and say, remember, I didn't just tell you a bunch of neat philosophy or how to make good people better. I'm telling you that it's livable. He says, look at my life. And we say, man, that's bold. But understand before we look at this last section in our last answer that there were many wandering teachers that cared more about some new content and cash than they did about their own character and the community. Hello, are there Christian pastors, preachers, or fill-in-the-blank other philosophizers today, they may not be wandering around like they did in the ancient Near East, who care more about content and cash and less about their character and the community which they are connected to or not. Most often we find that those who would look for more followers and have a more dangerous fall We're actually never doing this thing together to begin with. And they had all the right answers. And they had all the slick looking gifts just like Paul. Paul wrote several books. Paul amassed a pretty big audience. But Paul is going to come back routinely at the end of this chapter and saying, Dude, remember, I worked. I didn't take more from you than was necessary. I burned the candle at both ends. I didn't want the finest clothes and jewelry. This is where we turn as we round home the last few moments. It's so much to read. I'd like for you to look at it on your phone, on the screen, on the Bible. And you can read through it, look through it. I'm going to hit the highlights and move briskly through the last section. But understand now as we resume the story in verse 13, we've got more we language on the move together, here, there, and everywhere. Continuing the farewell tour, but watch, avoiding trouble in Ephesus. See Acts chapter 19. So what he basically does is he sends a message ahead to the Ephesian elders and says, can we meet at the airport in Miletus? And so they go just south of of Ephesus, and that's where he's meeting with the leaders of the church that he spent three years with and loved deeply. That's when he said, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. And then he talks about in verse 19, about how I served the Lord with great humility 
and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents, you know, watch. This is the work he reflected back on doing. That I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. What he's saying is I practiced what I preached and I preached to everyone everywhere to repent and have faith in Jesus. So then in verse 22 he says, Now the Spirit is leading me and I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. He says that elsewhere. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel, the good news of God's grace. Paul has a clear vision of what he's called and empowered to do. Paul knows his corner. This is what I want you to understand. Paul has a clear sense that he's called to preach the gospel and he won't waver even though we may not like it. It'll probably be tough, but we're going to make it. And I love that Paul never wavers from what he's supposed to do, but listen, he's always staying open to the how he'll do it. He always stays open to where he'll do it next. Some of us say, this is who I am, this is what I do, but don't you dare tell me to change how I do it or where I got to go do it. Not Paul. Paul shows us a next level of faith. The word faith means trust. And so Paul can move into new spaces, into new ways of being and doing because he trusts that God is leading him and equipping him to do that work. So now I ask you the same thing I'm asking me. And it's with this term of framing narrative. What's the framing narrative of your life? It's that story that you tell about yourself. It's that story that you tell to others about who you are and what you do. Look at every one of Paul's letters and he will tell you about how he has a narrative, a story. And it's about how he's the one that's bringing the gospel to the nations, the Gentiles. I was over here with my Jewish brothers and sisters, but now I'm crossing the boundary line into the new territory and I'm preaching to the nations. That's his framing narrative. What's the framing narrative of your life? To get the most money? To get the most recognition? I am what I do? Or is it, I am one in whom Christ dwells. I am a beloved child of God. And however that expresses itself in my vocation, my job, it doesn't change the narrative that I am loved by the God of the universe. And I have been given a word and a mission to love and serve my neighbor. I think Martin Luther King had a good sense of this. 
and the last speech before his assassination, of all the awards, all the trophies, he said, forget all that. I want someone at my funeral to say that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I think his framing narrative was to love the person in front of him, whether they were enemy, white, black, or whatever. And he was committed to doing it with nonviolent, Jesus-looking, sacrificial love. What's your framing narrative? What's your idea of success? And just in case me dropping another saint on you, Mother Teresa, she had a similar answer in case you're feeling inadequate. Mother Teresa said, never worry about numbers, just worry about the person in front of you. Love the person in front of you. Two of the greatest saints of our modern time boiled down their life to one spent loving. I say this at funerals. What is a life well lived? It's a life well loved. So never say that I can't be Paul. I can't even be Timothy. Be you and love the person next to you. A life well lived is a life well loved. Don't you ever say, well, I'm just... This is something that I struggle with too. You're never just a blank. You are more. You are loved and you are called to love others. Verse 25 through 28, Paul effectively says, this is it. I'm not going to see you again. You'll never see me again. And so he gives them another Reminder that he practiced what he preached. I did what I was supposed to do, how I was supposed to do it. And then in verse 28, you see, so keep watch over yourself and the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Do you know that this is the only time in Paul that he uses this language of shepherding? Paul used every metaphor under the sun, but he never used the shepherding metaphor, except here. The next section, 29 to 31, he's going to warn them of those who care more about their content and cash and clout. He says, they're going to come in and swoop in. Since I'm off the grid, they're going to swoop in and say, I'll be the next one. And he says to the Ephesian church, no, 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 you go get your corner and we'll see if you're worthy. We'll see if you're in it for the right reasons. So he says, keep watch. He warns them, verses 32 to 35. He blesses them. And he reminds them again of the early mornings and all that he did to work. Listen, Paul worked early in the morning, preaching, praying. Then he worked his day job with Priscilla and Aquila making tents in Ephesus. And during the lunch break, do you remember the Hall of Tyrannus? Dude, during the lunch break, that dude would go in the local community college and he would teach. And then he would go back to work and then he would spend all night preaching until guys fall out of the window dead. Paul was reminding them again. And then you know what he says in verse 35? How many of you have a red letter Bible? I do up here. Y'all see red letters? What does it say? 
It is more blessed to give than to receive. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Now, I'll give you $1,000. I'll give you $1 million. I literally will give you everything in my bank account that's not a million dollars. If you can find in the Gospels where Jesus says it. Y'all want those stacks on stacks of pastor cash? You will have a better chance of finding my wedding ring that was thrown into my parents' bushes during a volleyball game 12 years ago than finding that in the Gospels. Jesus doesn't have it recorded in the Gospels. Isn't that interesting? But how many of you have heard it's more blessed to give than to receive? How many of you think that Jesus said more than a handful of words in red in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? John tells us this. So that we get a little glimpse into the early church gathering, the early church tradition, and we get a glimpse of Paul, who's not just another blurry picture in motion. We get him sitting still for a portrait and reflective and showing us things we don't always get to see. That's why, as we round home, in verse 36... When he finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed and they wept and they embraced him and they kissed him. And what grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Doesn't that just gut you? Then they accompanied him to the ship. The third answer to our question. Where are we going? We're going to where the good shepherd leads next. Carla told me this week that her brother, Marcos, who's a pastor in Tijuana, says, don't ever worry about numbers. Some people will come to us. Some people will come through us. I think the church needs to normalize companions that come along for the journey. And that journey may be three months, three years, or even longer. But understand that church is not the sum total of someone's journey with God. I think that a lot of times we grieve when they go and we never see their face again because we loved. And it's right to do that. But it's also right to bless and send because the Holy Spirit is moving us to something new and next. So what we do is we form one another while we're together. And we might walk five minutes We might walk 50 years together, but we form each other through the seasons we journeyed together. And we are companions on the journey with you, but listen, we can't journey for you. Nobody's going to have a relationship with Jesus, the good shepherd, for you, but we promise we can do it with you. Can we be better? Yes. What are some ways that we can be more hospitable, more aware, more awake to those around us as we journey together. So I'll leave you with these questions. Where are you going? Tonight we've looked at Acts chapter 20 and answered three ways in which we look at the question, where are we going? But where are you going? What are you headed toward? Are you set toward Jesus? Are you veering off? Are you sure you're headed in the right direction? And who are you going with? Because that's who helps you stay on the path. Because we're going together. 
We're going to do the work of new life that God has called and empowered us to do. And we're going to go where the good shepherd leads next. So keep paying attention. Stay together. Because we've got work ahead and a ways to go. Amen and amen. May we open our whole being to Christ's invitation to walk away from death and into fullness of life. Not just through the waters of baptism, but within the everyday moments of our week. May the Spirit of God enable us to recognize the people and places to whom we are being sent as ambassadors of new creation. May God the Father open us to fresh expressions of community and mission as we are formed more fully into a faithful expression of the body of Christ, as those who are awake to God's resurrection power and aligned with God's kingdom purpose. Go in peace.